my my last week here for a while. Naturally, we're going to have a lot of ground to cover today, making up for all of the, you know, we've got to have like several weeks of sermons in one here, so settle in and get comfortable. And I'm I'm half I'm half joking. It is it is a lot of ground that we're covering today. Hopefully it won't be too much, but uh, we are going to be continuing in the book of Ezra today. Last week, Mike introduced us to the book of Ezra, and he kind of gave us a little bit of a history lesson uh, going through kind of the timeline events of events uh, and all the kings uh, leading up to the exile, the good kings, the bad kings. Uh, and he kind of gave us some of that context into which the book of Ezra fits. And then he went over the first two chapters of Ezra. And remember, the book of Ezra picks up exactly where the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, leaves off. And Ezra actually has an introduction in chapter 1 that matches word for word the conclusion of Chronicles uh, with the, the decree from King Cyrus of Persia that the people of Israel should return uh, to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple for Yahweh. And then the rest of those first two chapters is basically a chart. It's like a spreadsheet of, uh, it's a documentation of everyone who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And remember now, Jerusalem, where they're migrating back to, Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, southern kingdom of Israel after the split between the northern and southern kingdom. So it was the southern tribes who returned from Babylon, who were originally deported to Babylon from Jerusalem by who? Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and so it's those same southern tribes who are returning. Do you remember who those, those two tribes were? There were two of them. Judah and Benjamin, exactly. And Ezra 1 and 2 documents all those people from those two tribes uh, and, and who, who chose to return. Because not, not everyone did, but those who did choose to return. Uh, and along with, you know, it documents all the gold and the silver and all the other loot that they were able to bring with them uh, and who, that was given to them by their, by their neighbors in Babylon. So we're going to pick up today in chapter 3. And again, it, it is, we're going to cover a lot of ground because we're going to go all the way through chapter 6. So three chapters. And if you want to follow along, I encourage you to kind of find your place there in Ezra chapter 3 because I'm not going to have all of the verses up on the screen. And we won't be reading every single verse uh, together, uh, just kind of some key passages, and I'll kind of summarize other parts of it. Uh, but you might be able to kind of skim the context as we read through it. But before we do dive into chapter 3, I want to point out just a few of the key characters that we've seen and that have been introduced already in the first two chapters, just as kind of a reminder, because they do play important roles in the story, and they come back up in today's passages. So first of all, we're talking about uh, key characters in the book of Ezra. So who's the main character of the book of Ezra? It's the book of Ezra. So who can we expect to kind of play a critical role in the book of Ezra? Ezra, right. Yes, exactly. That's not a trick question. That's, that's right. You know, Ezra is kind of, he, he's the central character of this book. But he actually hasn't been introduced yet. He hasn't been introduced in the first two chapters. And we actually won't meet him even in chapter 3 or 4 or 5 or 6. So we're not even going to see Ezra yet today. 
in the book of Ezra, the person of Ezra isn't introduced until chapter 7. He's still the main focus of the book, but the first six chapters are almost like a prelude or, or a preface to the rest of the story. So if so far in this preface, if Ezra isn't one of the key characters yet, then, then who is? And of course, it starts off with King Cyrus of Persia, right? And that's, that's an important name to remember. Cyrus is the, the king of Persia who issued the decree originally that the temple of Jerusalem should be rebuilt, that the Jewish exiles in Babylon should return to their homeland in Judah. Then next in chapter 2, the ones that I really want to point out are some Israelite leaders who get named and called out specifically. In, in chapter 2, there's a list of, um, it goes through, there's numbers of men from different ancestors, but first it lists by, uh, some, some key leaders that were leading that whole list of people. Uh, so let me just read the first two verses again for you, and this is up on the screen as well. In Ezra 2, verses 1 and 2. These now are the people of the province who came from those captive exiles King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. Some fun names in there. So verse 2 has this list of some specific men. And the ones, the first two, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, those are the ones that we'll, we'll see come back up uh, most significantly. But a couple of these other ones might also sound familiar to you. Does, do any of these other names stand out to you? Which ones? Nehemiah, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the name of the, the next book, actually. And actually, Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one one book when it was written. It was written as one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a very important person in the book of Nehemiah, but it's a different Nehemiah. It's a totally different guy. So this Nehemiah here is, is a different Nehemiah, just like we have, you know, multiple mics here. There were multiple Nehemiahs. Um, what about Mordecai? Mordecai, does that name look familiar? Yeah, Mordecai is a pretty important guy in the book of Esther. But again, it's a different Mordecai. <laughs> so I just wanted to clarify that even though you have these two familiar names in here, Nehemiah and Mordecai, you just don't get too excited because they're not actually the same people that you might first think of. I know, it's almost like, oh, such a cool connection. No, it's not. <laughs> and as for the rest of the names, you know, they're, they're prominent leaders of different families. But again, the, you know, the first two stand out as especially prominent, Zerubbabel and Yeshua. And you'll, you'll see those names again a few times. Usually, you'll even see them mentioned together in the context, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. So it's worth taking notice of who they are and kind of why they're significant. So first of all, we have Zerubbabel. He was the grandson of Jehoiakim. Does anyone remember who Jehoiakim was? He was one of the, one of the kings that Mike brought out last week. Jehoiachin, yeah, and I make fun of him for that. But yeah, Jehoiakim, uh, he was the last king of Judah. wasn't wasn't a very good king, was he? He was one of the he, he had the the red happy kings and the the dark gray and black bad kings. He was one of those dark 
bad kings. Uh, but he was the last one of the Davidic line. He was a descendant of David, and he was the last one to actually sit on the throne in Jerusalem before Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So Zerubbabel, being his grandson, uh, makes him a very a crucial tie-in to the line of David, because he too is then an ancestor or a descendant of David. And in fact, you'll even find Zerubbabel's name in the genealogy of Christ. Like if you look at the book of Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, you'll see Zerubbabel in there. So he's, he's definitely important in terms of you know, being the grandson of the last king to have any power in Jerusalem. Descendant of King David, and that, you know, being a descendant of King David also means he's the ancestor of the Messiah. So he's, it's significant that he's going to have a role in reestablishing Jerusalem and in the rebuilding of the temple. Also, his name is interesting. And you, you know me, I have to kind of geek out on the, the Hebrew of his name. So Zeru, first part of his name means seed. Okay, and then Babel, that's, or Babel, that's the Hebrew word for Babylon. So Zeru, Babel, together, literally means seed in Babylon. Or, and you could take that to mean either planted in Babylon or you know, descendant of Babylon. Because seed can also be used for descendant. So either way, you know, he planted in Babylon, descendant of Babylon. That means it's a reference to the fact that he was born and raised in Babylon during the exile. So he never lived in Jerusalem. So even though he was returning to, quote-unquote, his homeland, he was really actually leaving the only home that he ever knew and willfully transplanting himself into a new home, not where he was born, not where he was planted, but to the home of his, his ancestors. And that in itself is really a reminder that this was true for a lot of the people who returned. Uh, or who moved, I should say. You know, we refer to this event as the return or the return home of the exiles from exile. But, you know, even though there were, there were some of the older people who did remember, they were young enough when they left that they were still alive and they remembered living in Jerusalem. And they could remember the temple, they could remember Jerusalem being home. But for many, and for the majority of the leaders, you know, this Jerusalem was not their home. It was, it was the home of their grandparents, but they had personally never experienced that, that place as their home. Zerubbabel, being one of the most important leaders then of that time, he re- represents, even just in his name, the, the people who were born in Babylon, but who chose to move to Jerusalem to rebuild what was destroyed in, for most of them, their grandparents' day. Right, so that's Zerubbabel. Jeshua, the other one, is also significant for his ancestry. He's the grandson of the last high priest in Jerusalem, Josedach. And you'll see him become uh, the, the first high priest to serve in Jerusalem in the temple after the exile. And his name is interesting, too, because of the other Jeshuas in the Bible. You know, Jeshua or, or Yeshua, as it would have been pronounced. It's an alternative spelling of Joshua or, or Yahshua. So it's the same name as Joshua. Joshua who, who took Moses' place and led the Israelites into the promised land. And it's also the same name, same Hebrew name, that was given to the Messiah, 
Yeshua is a Hebrew name that became Jesus through just the Greek and the Latin. Uh, so Yeshua, it's the same name as Jesus in Hebrew. Uh, and so obviously, it's kind of a significant name. And it's interesting, I think, it's just interesting that the first high priest after the exile had this name. And if you look at, there's one or two other Yeshuas in the Bible, and it's interesting just to kind of compare their stories, and they have some interesting correlations. But together with, you know, the main point, the Zerubbabel and Yeshua, they had this tie to their ancestry, the grandsons of the last high priest and the last king of Judah before Jerusalem was destroyed. So it's significant to have both of those men uh, with such strong ties to their, their past, now in positions of, of authority in Jerusalem. So keep those names in mind and who they are, because we'll see them again a couple times. And now that we know kind of some of these key players, we're going to go ahead and, and go into chapter 3. And this chapter gives us some of the details of what these leaders did and what the people did once they actually got to Jerusalem. Remember, too, that this was not a short trip. To, from Babylon to Jerusalem. It was, what, 900 miles, roughly? So this was a major journey, a major migration uh, from, Jeru- from Babylon to Jerusalem. And they had to totally reestablish their lives, too. Uh, just a, it's a pretty major adjustment to make. Just keep that in the back of your head as well. We're going to start reading in Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Yeshua, son of Josedach, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the Law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offering and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions as well as the free will offerings brought to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. So the big thing to notice here is just their commitment to offering the sacrifices as prescribed. They're doing things according to the law that was given through Moses and established through Moses, the covenant that they made with God. And they're so committed to doing things right this time around that they're doing it in spite of being afraid, it says in verse 3. They're they're afraid of how their neighbors might react, but they do it anyway. And also notice that they do this first. They offer these sacrifices before doing anything else, before beginning the work that they've set out to do. And Mike pointed out last week that this passage and, and Exodus or the, you know, this, this event, their return from exile and exodus, even though they, they have a, some similarities to each other, they're not necessarily meant to parallel each other in as many ways. Uh, they're not parallel archetypes. 
However, in, in both events, you do have the goal of worshiping God. Remember, you know, Pharaoh, Moses was, was asking Pharaoh to let the people go to worship God. And Cyrus, when he issued his decree, it was go so that you can worship your God. So that's the primary goal of them returning to Jerusalem. And that's the first thing they do when they get there is worship God. And it's worth just kind of noticing and pointing out and pondering the fact that they did this in the face of fear. It's not the main point of this particular passage, but it's, it's a good reminder uh, just that when it comes to following God and doing the right thing, that it's not always the easiest thing to do. It's not always a cakewalk. And when circumstances are, are difficult and daunting and scary, the presence of fear or, or of anxiety does not necessarily indicate a lack of faith in your life. Jesus himself is proof of this. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he demonstrated his faith in the Father and, and in his submission and his commitment to following the will of the Father, even in the midst of his own experience of agonizing stress and just the anticipation of the suffering he was about to go through. And yet he was still faithful. And you see that the, the Israelites here so far, they're being a pretty good example of, of demonstrating that kind of faith uh, that ultimately results from having a fear in Yahweh that's greater and more profound than any fear of their, their neighbors. And it's also just a reminder that our, our worship of God really should precede our activities for God. And they're connected to each other. You know, act, activities can be worship, but it's, all, it's possible to do the work of God, quote-unquote, without truly worshiping him in it. So the worship really should come first, the, the attitude of the heart, the attitude of worship, and the motivation of worship. And out of that should flow our, our actions and our work. Let's keep reading in chapter 3 still, picking up in verse 7. They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans and gave food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by sea, according to the authorization given them by King Cyrus of Persia. In the second month of the second year after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Yeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from the captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites, who were 20 years old or more, which was a kind of a special uh, exception that they made, by the way, because apparently they didn't have enough Levites, and Mike brought that out last week, but originally the they were supposed to be, I think, 30 before they were able to serve and do this work, but they made an exception. So it was anyone 20, 20 years or more to supervise the work. Yeshua with his sons and brothers, Kadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, and Henadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites, joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. For he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. 
Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites and family heads, who had seen the first temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. So now we have the, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Yeshua, the laying of the foundation of Yahweh's temple. The building of the rest of the temple itself, you know, the walls and everything else in it hadn't even begun yet. They've just finished building and repairing the foundation. And yet that alone was caused for this tremendous, loud celebration that was heard far away. This was the mark of a new beginning, the dawn of a new age. In fact, historians today still refer to this whole era of time, from really Ezra to the, the time of Christ, as the second temple period. A lot of influential study and writing was done by Jewish scholars during this time, during this second temple period. And you have these, these joyful people celebrating. You have this recognition of hope with this, this foundation being laid. Uh, it's a renewed energy. I get the sense of, you know, they have the, the sense of a light of a new dawn. But then verse 12 points out that contrasting group of people who, you know, these older folks who are old enough to remember the former glories and everything that was lost. And they can't just help but see what's missing and how far still they have to go in, in this rebuilding effort, if they're ever truly to be restored to what they once were. So it's just another reminder of kind of that mixed perspective, that variety of emotions that were kind of swirling around in Jerusalem and with the people at this, this pivotal moment in their history. Let's keep reading, uh, picking up in the beginning of chapter 4. have kind of a little bit of a, a turn of events here. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, let us build with you. For we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Asar Hadan of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them, to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. All right, so two things happen here in this passage. First, we're told that Judah and Benjamin's enemies, with who exactly these enemies are is not specified here. And scholars have a little bit of a debate about who exactly, which people groups those were. But they heard about the temple being rebuilt, and they came to help. At least that's what they claimed. They came to the Jewish leaders and said, hey, you know, we've been worshiping and sacrificing to your God ever since we got here. 
So let us help you. We'll help you rebuild the temple so we can really worship him properly. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other leaders, they said, nope, no, you have no part with us. And then they actually referred to the decree of King Cyrus as kind of justification for their reply. They said, well, Cyrus commanded us to rebuild the temple. He didn't command you guys to rebuild the temple. So we're just, we're following the decree of Cyrus. It's not our fault. We're, you know, it's the king of Persia. You know, take it up with him if you really are upset because he told us to build it, not you. So they, they rejected the help of their neighbors and, and referenced the decree of Cyrus to back that, back them up. And then the second thing that happened is, is presented really as a direct result of that first thing. And it's that those people who were rejected then react by discouraging the building efforts of the Jews. They threaten them. They bribe officials and they frustrate their plans. And now it says that the people are too afraid to build. And doesn't that statement kind of seem like a, a stark contrast to what we were just talking about a minute ago with their, their faith in the midst of their fear? They, they sacrificed even though they were afraid. Now it says they're too afraid to build. Now this passage is, is fascinating. This, this, one, this part of these three chapters is the one that really stuck out to me the most uh, because it states some just simple facts. This is what happened. Right, the basic dialogue of, of what took place and then and the decisions that were made and the outcomes of those decisions. What it doesn't offer is really any kind of straightforward commentary as to the justification or the condemnation of their actions. So this narrative is providing a historical account of what happened, more so than it's providing any kind of moral commentary which can be frustrating when we approach the Bible as a moral commentary, right? But that's not the way every single piece of the Bible is put together. But we can still make some observations about what happened here. And many scholars who study this, they come to the conclusion that because these people who approach the Jewish leaders are referred to as their enemies in verse 1, and then they eventually do go on to oppose the building of the temple, then those, those people who they claim they wanted to help they really must have come with ulterior motives of some kind. Or perhaps, though, even though they did probably worship Yahweh as they claimed, they also probably worshipped all kinds of other gods, and if they were included, then they would have corrupted the, the holiness of the temple and, and ended up being a trap for the Jews, causing them to mess up much in the way all of their ancestors did when they were influenced by their, their neighbors and their other gods. And it's entirely possible that those, those people and, and that the motives behind the Jewish leaders reject, rejecting these people um, were, were pure. And it could be that they were just trying to keep themselves pure and avoid those pitfalls of their, their past that haunted them, of all the mistakes their ancestors made. They really just didn't want to mess up again. That's why they rejected them. That's possible, but the thing is, this, this passage doesn't actually reveal the motives of either side, of, of the so-called enemies or of the Jewish leaders. It doesn't make it clear whether or not they had ulterior motives, um, those who wanted to help, and it's not clear exactly what the motives were for the Jews rejecting them. But one thing I couldn't help notice about this was that the reason they gave 
for turning them away was not an appeal to Yahweh and his commandments. They didn't go to the Torah and say, look, this is why you can't help us. And they didn't say, oh, well, we have this, this direction from Yahweh that the priests gave us or that a prophet gave us, and, and they told us not to let you help. No. Why not? You know, if these people claim to worship Yahweh, then surely they could have just used or referred to a commandment from Yahweh in order to, you know, say that if there was a commandment prohibiting them from helping, uh, they could have appealed to that. And then since they all, if everyone's claiming here to worship Yahweh, then we can, and we're on the same ground, then they would have to accept that, right? Oh, okay, well then, you know, that's, that's the way it is. But no, they appealed to the decree of Cyrus, the authority of Persia. And then it's that exact authority that their enemies then used against them in retaliation. So they were able to manipulate the Persian authorities against the Jewish efforts, and that effectively forced them to stop building for an extended period of time. Isn't that interesting? And <laughs> the passage doesn't make it clear, and I'm not saying that I can make it clear <laughs> in, in this case, but it's at least a little bit more complicated than it. At first glance, it might be easy to praise Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others for kind of maintaining their efforts for segregation uh, and, and saying, oh, well, they're just trying to be holy and faithful. And yes, you know, they appealed to the authority of Cyrus rather than to the authority of God. But, you know, maybe they were just trying to be diplomatic and gentle about it. Let them down easy. Maybe. It's, but my point really is just that it's complicated and that it's worth kind of pondering the results of all this. And we're going to get to the results. Um, because regardless of, regardless of the motives of either side, of anyone involved, the end result of all of this presents some problems. And I think this turn of events here, just all of that, what just happened in chapter 3 and 4, should kind of create a somewhat unsettled feeling in us as we're looking at this picture. In light of all of what we've just been studying through all the prophets and everything that's been promised beyond the exile, even though they will offend, they'll finish building eventually, they'll finish the temple, and eventually even the walls of the city, this little encounter here sets a certain precedent and establishes a pattern. And if you pay attention, I think it will be clear that there's something just not quite right with, with the whole picture. And we'll, we'll come back to that idea in a few minutes. Just kind of tuck that in the back of your mind. In the meantime, we have to talk about the rest of chapter 4. Because we only read the first few verses. And this whole section of, of chapter 4 now, between verse 6 and 23, it's sort of a, a parenthetical. It goes into some of the drama of the back and forth between Persian kings and the Jews and the people who are opposed to the Jews. And we're not going to read through all of it together just for the sake of time, but it's, it's some juicy reading. Uh, if you like the drama and the intrigue of you know, political sabotage and, and power plays and that kind of back and forth, then you should totally go home and, and dive into that passage on your own and try to follow it. It's fascinating because both sides really try to use the same authorities, the same decrees against each other. It's like a courtroom drama of people and referring to the same evidence, the same laws, and but they're each trying to get their own way. But on the other hand, you know, as as fun as I think it is to read, I have to warn you that if you're a fan of chronological timelines and 
in, in chronological storytelling, then chapter four of Ezra is, is not for you because it's not. And just remember that biblical writers were not always as concerned with presenting chronological storylines as they were with presenting themes and ideas in a way that clearly communicates the message of the story. And that's, that's kind of what you have here. Ezra 4, uh, verse 5, leaves off with the words, until the reign of Darius. And then in verse 24, picks up with, you know, until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So it's pretty seamless. If you skip from verse 5 down to chapter 4, it's a perfectly seamless transition. But then <laughs> verses 6 through 23 documents the series of letters and it's not clear there's really any chronological order, and it makes references to kings who came after Darius. So if you're trying to follow it from a linear perspective, it's going to be very confusing. But that doesn't mean, I just have to point it out, because we shouldn't think then that the writer of Ezra was confused, even though we might be confused reading it, or that we can't take this account to be historically accurate. Because the ancient Jewish writers, they were very concerned with historical accuracy, but they had different methods of, of, and traditions of storytelling than we're used to in our culture. And we've talked about this before in other books that we've studied. So Ezra is not unique in this aspect. Um, it's just one of the many reminders that I think it's, it's necessary for us to constantly remind ourselves that reading the Old Testament is, in fact, a cross-cultural experience, and, and this is a perfect example of that. So, with all that said, we're going to skip now forward to chapter 5 and, and highlight, or actually the end of chapter 4, because we, find, we come to a key passage here. Again, chapter 4 ended with that little bookend, or kind of the closing parenthetical. The construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. And it brings us back to where verse 5 left off. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who is over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, son of Josedek, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets were with them, helping them. Now at that time, Tatanai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar Bozanai and their colleagues came to the Jews and asked, Who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? They also asked them, What are the name, names of the workers who are constructing this building? But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men wouldn't stop them until a report was sent to Darius so that they could receive written instructions about this matter. When they did start building again, we know that they were doing the right thing because the prophets of God were with them. They were, they were helping them. And in verse 5, it specifically says that God was watching over them, watching over the Jewish elders. So in this case, it's true as with in any case, in any situation, it was ultimately by the grace of God and through the power of God that the will of God was accomplished. And yet they were still met with some opposition, weren't they? Even as they worked, they were 
met with. And this wasn't the first obstacle that they faced. It wouldn't be their last. And we'll see that later on in Ezra and Nehemiah. And yet they were clearly doing God's will. And this is just a great reminder here that God, when God tells us to do something and we encounter obstacles, we encounter so-called closed doors, those aren't necessarily invitations from God to give up or messages that he's changed his mind about what he wants us to do. You know, if we're working with God, then we can trust him to overcome any obstacle because his will is sovereign and and his work will be accomplished. That's a a theme that we'll see come back up uh, again as we study these books. And God did allow them to keep building. But it was after some interesting back and forth that we read in chapter 5. So Tatanai, this this governor from nearby, from the, the region west of the Euphrates, he approached the Jews and said, basically, Who's, who said you could do this? So it just has a very indignant, I'm reading a little bit into it, but who said you could do this? And then also give me the names of everyone doing this. I'm going to write down everyone who's doing this. And again, we're not explicitly told what his motives are, but it seems like he's really trying to get them in trouble. And at the very least, he wanted to make sure they were legit, legit and that they were authorized in doing this. So at the very least, he, even if he was well-intentioned, he was that, that guy who was going to make them go through every layer of bureaucratic red tape that he could possibly make them go through to make sure that the, what they were doing was exactly right. So they put together a full report, and Tots and I sent it in to Darius with the Jews' full reply. And I won't read through the whole thing, but their reply boils down to saying, you know, our ancestors built this a long time ago. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. King Cyrus issued a decree that we should come back and rebuild it. And at this point, it's worth mentioning, they, they bring up this decree so often. In the Persian Empire, it was law that any decree that was issued by a king could never be overturned. And that's a fact that both sides kind of use in their favor uh, because they can refer to that decree as something that can't be overturned. And it's a detail that does come back up in the book of Esther as well. So the Jews appealed again to the decree of Cyrus, and they invited Darius, who is now the king, to search the archives to find that decree and to prove what they were saying was correct. And Tatanai said, yeah, you go and and prove what they're saying is correct. You search those archives. And in chapter 6, Darius did, in fact, give that order to conduct a search for the decree. And eventually they found it. uh, And it gives even a specific detail as to where they found it. And it said exactly what the Jews claimed it said. So then Darius then issued his own decree, which really, it backfired on Tatanai pretty pretty bad. If, in fact, he was hoping to stop them, if that was his goal, then, then this was a, a huge uh, a backfiring. In verse 6 of chapter 6, I'm going to pick up. Therefore, this is the decree from, from Darius, therefore, you must stay away from that place, Tatanai, governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar, Bozanai, and your colleagues, the officials in the region. Leave the construction of the house of God alone. Let the governor and elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its original site. I hereby issue a decree concerning what you are to do, 
so that the elders of the Jews can rebuild the house of God. The cost is to be paid in full to these men out of the royal revenues from the taxes of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of the heavens, or wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem. Let it be given to them every day without fail, so that they can offer sacrifices of pleasing aroma to the God of the heavens and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I also issue a decree concerning any man who interferes with this directive. Let a beam be torn from his house and raised up. He will be impaled on it, and his house will be made into a garbage dump because of this offense. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who dares to harm or interfere with this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued the decree. Let it be carried out diligently. Then Tatanai, governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar, Bozanai, and their colleagues diligently carried out what King Darius had decreed. I, I would have been pretty diligent myself as well, I think. And to sum it up, you know, Darius said, Tatanai and all your friends, go away. Leave them alone. Not only that, but the whole region where Tatanai was governor had to then pay out of their taxes to contribute to the work that the Jews were doing to rebuild the temple. And just in case anyone is, is still thinking of interfering or going against this decree, the penalty for interfering would be getting impaled on a beam from your own house, and then your house would be made into a garbage dump. That's just a very colorful penalty. Let me tell you, the Persians really had a thing for dramatic penalties. And again, we'll see that again in the story of Esther. But as we come to the end of chapter 6, starting in verse 14, we find that you know, after this, they finally do finish building the temple. So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo. They finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. This house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. That's a specific date that they gave, and I'll come back to that in a second. Then the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 lambs, as well as 12 male goats as a sin offering for all Israel, one for each Israelite tribe. I wonder how many of those came from Tatanai. They also appointed the priests by their divisions and the Levites by their groups to the service of God in Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. All of the priests and Levites who were ceremonially clean, because they had purified themselves, they killed the Passover lamb for themselves, their priestly brothers, and all the exiles. The Israelites who had returned from exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the Gentiles of the land, in order to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. They observed the festival of the unleavened bread 
for seven days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful, having changed the Assyrian king's attitude toward them so that he supported them in the work of the house of the God of Israel. So a quick little side note is you mentioned some specific dates there. And because they did keep um, very accurate and precise records of, of how long it took, we know that this project took just about four and a half years to complete. And to compare that to the original temple, it took over seven years to complete. We can see that in 1 Kings 6, 37 and 38. It's just kind of an interesting side note. More than three years less time. Almost half the time that it took. It's interesting. Uh, but it was completed. The second temple to Yahweh was completed, and they dedicated it with this just staggering amount of sacrifices. And with sin offerings, notice that it says that they provided those 12 goats as sin offerings. So there's sin offerings for all 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, it was only this, those two tribes that came back uh, to build the temple, and yet they offer sacrifices for all 12 tribes. And then they, they celebrated Passover and, and the Festival of Unleavened Bread together. So these were celebrations, if you remember. These were established to commemorate their liberation from Egypt. They were symbols of their birth as a nation. And their celebration here commemorated then kind of a sort of rebirth for Israel. And it says that Yahweh made them joyful. Yahweh supported them, and he sustained them in their work and he gave them joy. This was a beautiful moment for Israel. Again, it was the dawn of a new age. But as, as much as this scene is a positive one, I have to go back to the idea of how I mentioned earlier that there's just something that feels off about this whole picture that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it starts here because, yes, God brought the Jews back from exile just as he had promised through the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they talked about this. And yes, God allowed them to rebuild their temple. And yes, eventually they would build up the walls of the city and they would have a city, they'd be a nation again. But all of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, so you, that we, we've looked at those, and even um, the other prophets, those, those prophecies of, of redemption, and restoration. We see them being fulfilled here, right? This is, this is what was promised. Or is it? Is this the, the fulfillment of, of redemption and restoration? And, you know, the, the short answer is, of course, well, yes and no. <laughs> and eventually we'll see that kind of in a variety of ways throughout the rest of the books, you know, how, yes, it was a fulfillment of the prophecies of them returning from exile, but it really fell short of the ultimate fulfillment of prophecies of, of abundance and prosperity and the ultimate restoration of humanity. But for now, you know, even though just looking at this little beginning of Ezra, it's a great start to the new temple. But consider, there's just a couple things to consider. That the ultimate promise for the new temple that Isaiah talks about, the new Jerusalem, would be that it would fulfill God's promise to Abraham, his promise to Moses, to David, that Israel would bless the whole world, that they would bless all the nations, that people from all over the earth would be streaming to God's presence in his temple. And yet we see in Ezra, 
when the temple is built, there's a celebration of, of their separation from the rest of the earth and the exclusion of their neighbors. Regardless of what motives were involved, their, their neighbors were excluded, and there's this seed of division that has been planted here that would eventually transform what, even with the purest of motives, was perhaps a quest for just holiness and, and sanctity, eventually evolved into just a, a hearts full of hatred towards others. And what's more, you know, we see not just in that, that, that exclusion, but we see a precedent set by Jewish leaders here that would eventually, over the course of the next few hundred years, again, it was, they evolved into just this deeper attitude of exclusivity and of legalism, where before the exile, you kind of had this pattern of they were playing God's covenant too, too loose, too fast and loose, and they would just welcome in other gods and other religions, you know, way too frequently. They want to avoid that, which is great. But then you kind of see the pendulum swing into the, the opposite extreme after the exile. You know, even if we assume that in Ezra here, their intentions and motivations were perfectly good, eventually they got so caught up in their religious identity that they totally lost sight of who God really wanted them to be. And we see that, you know, once, once we hit the New Testament, that's what Jesus came in and called out so frequently. Oh, by the way, speaking of Jesus, you know, we have this rebuilt temple that was promised. That's great, but what about this Messiah guy, this anointed one, the chosen one of Israel who would be the savior and king who would restore Israel to their former glory? You know, if that was going to all happen at the same time as the, the temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt, where is he? You know, is it, is it Cyrus? Because he is referred to as the Messiah in Isaiah. And he did issue that decree and was the kind of the, he set things in motion, but he's not a descendant of David. He's a Persian king. He can't be the Messiah. So what about Zerubbabel? He's the descendant of David. He's great and all, but he certainly doesn't live up to all the hype that we've talked about the Messiah being. So all that said, my point here is that this is still a mixed bag. It's this joyous rebirth and it's a celebration of a new temple but it's really only a partial fulfillment. And even though it's, a, it's kind of a happy ending to the story, at least at this, this point so far, it's, it's a shadow of the promised kingdom to come. So eventually, you know, they, the Jews will see the return of oppression. <laughs> you know, you might be wondering, well, if they rebuilt the temple, is it still there? No, because the, the Romans eventually came and destroyed it again in, in 70 A.D., but even even before that, you'll see in, in Nehemiah they had they didn't they weren't prosperous. They were poverty stricken and they continued to be oppressed. And the Jews then at one point at one point realized too that the ultimate promises of the prophets had not yet been fulfilled. And we looked at that a little bit in Malachi even because that's uh, it kind of takes place during this time period where they just feel betrayed by God. They're like, well, you brought us back here, but we're not living in paradise. We haven't returned to Eden like you promised. And where's the Messiah? So as, as hopeful and as joyous as Ezra is in these moments, we just have to remember that 
the story still leaves them yearning. And us as the reader making our way through the story of the Bible, still yearning, still looking for that crucial missing piece of the Messiah. And that's kind of, that's the cliffhanger that I'm going to end with today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for the blessing of being able to be here and the blessing of your word. Lord, I, I thank you that we in our day can look back and, and see the fulfillment of the Messiah, that we have been so blessed to live in this day of being your church. I pray that you'd help us to not take that for granted. Lord, I pray that we can take this story of the Israelites in the time of, of Ezra and the return from the exile and and appreciate that and also uh, just use use it as a reminder of what faith really looks like and that we would have the faith to follow you and to join you in your work and to when we've been assigned work in your kingdom, that we would have the faith and the courage and, and a greater, more profound fear of you and, and a love of you that supersedes any of our other faith uh, or our other uh, fears or doubts or insecurities, and that your spirit would empower us to accomplish your will. Because we know that it's by your spirit that, that everything is, is accomplished. Lord, I pray for your blessing over, over all of us and for your will to be made clear to each of us in the days and the weeks and the months to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yes. Technically, yeah, when it was destroyed would be the end of it. Uh, you kind of see a bit of a shift with the arrival of Christianity at or 30 AD, whatever. But, yeah. I believe so. Yeah, I'm sure over 400 years things changed. But, right. They would have... I mean, it's, it's a building, so 400 years are going <laughs> to take its toll. But, yeah, it's, it is, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, there were, you know, I mentioned writings and, and uh, studies. It's a lot of, and even some of the writings that we have in our, our Bible today were done during this period of time. So this was, like, the establishment of the the Jewish religion as we know, well, as, as Jesus knew it, uh, the establishment of the Jewish religion started at this point. So the second temple period is, is definitely significant for that. Any other questions while we're at it? <laughs> yeah. Penalty for not paying tithes. Yeah, no, we're not going to institute Persian, Persian penalties. <laughs> uh. Well, thank you.